We are in Genesis chapter 2, and we have gotten a little bit more detail into how God created Adam and Eve. Remember, chapter 1 was kind of the cosmologic, it was the cosmos, it's the the grand view of how everything was created, and we get into chapter 2, and it's more of a focus on the human aspect of creation. So we see that God completed creation at the beginning of Genesis 2, 1 through 3, that we closed closed with last week. And we concluded the description of the creation of the cosmos with God's declaration that creation was complete. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. It is finished. The words rang out at the close of creation as on the cross they rang out at the close of redemption. Isn't that beautiful? And as we said last week, our man's first day was the day of rest, the day that was set apart and was blessed. So a day of worship and spending time with the Lord was man's first day. When we move into Genesis 2, 4 through 6, we are introduced to not just God's name of Elohim, but Jehovah Elohim, Lord God. And Jehovah or Yahweh is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And it is the I am that I am. And he is revealing himself as the covenant-keeping God. So we have here, he is saying, I am the covenant-keeping God. I'm a personal God, but I'm also God the creator. I am the Lord God. Let's look at four through six. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now this mist would be somewhat like a terrarium effect. That the ozone layer was so heavy, we know people didn't age like they do now. I mean, you don't live 800, 900 years and look like we look at 90, right? (laughs) So we know something was going on back then prior to the flood. Um, And that's what most people believe that it was. So we've got Jehovah Elohim, the Lord, the I Am, the Creator, revealing himself to us in chapter Then we get on to to verse 7, and we see God creates man. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, man and woman are set apart and are created differently than the rest of creation. And we see with verse 7, when it says that uh, the Lord God formed him, the Hebrew word is yatsar, and it means to form fashion, shape, or sculpt. It's used only three times in the book of Genesis and only in chapter 2. The clearest example of the creator's personal involvement is in his forming of the body of Adam. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. God was personally involved in creation. And he remains personally involved in our lives. So we see from the beginning, the apex of creation is man and woman, male and female, created in the image of God. But God starts first with man. He creates them of the dust, of the clay of the ground. He fashions, forms him, much like a potter with clay. And then what does he do? He breathes the very breath of life into Adam, and he becomes a living soul, a living being. So we see God personally fashioning the first man in verse 7. 
And then we're going to see God's going to plant a garden. He creates Adam first, then he plants the garden, this place of perfection, which is what Eden was. And he's going to place man in that garden. Let's pick up in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing, pleasing to the sight and good for food. So not only was God providing them food, but it was beautiful. I can't even begin to imagine what, I mean, the most beautiful botanic gardens you've ever been to doesn't come close <laughs> to all that Eden would have been. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the gardens, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, and the delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, the rivers came out of Eden, so the headwaters were there, and it split into four. That's quite unusual. <laughs> Usually, it's four that come into one. When you look at the Jordan River, it's several tributaries that come into the Jordan River and flow through Israel. But here, the life source, the water source, was from Eden. The first two rivers, we don't have a clue where they were, where they are, or if they even still exist. The other two, the Tigris and the Euphrates, are familiar rivers. But even here, they're not exactly part of each other. But all of that would have changed. The topography would have changed with the flood anyway. But we do know the Tigris and the Euphrates. So the, the Lord God created this garden, and he provided the perfect place for man to live. Now, they were naked, so it had to have been climate controlled. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. They didn't have their barefoot dreams blanket <laughs> that I need in the morning. <laughs> so it had to have been climate controlled. It was the perfect environment. Okay, then God is going to give a command in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. So look, Adam, look all around. Eat freely from every single tree of the garden. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So we see God gives him one command. Being created in the image of God, part of that means that we have been given a free will. We have the ability to choose. We've mentioned before, God did not create us as robots. He created us as beings who have the ability to choose because coerced love is not love. And God created us for relationship. So he wanted us to choose. And he's giving us the moral responsibility to choose obedience with this one tree that he says, don't eat of this one tree. So God has given the command, and man has to choose. Then God is going to allow the animals to come before him. And most of the, the commentators that I read said they, they think it must have been very similar to what happened with Noah when they all came marching into the, <laughs> to the ark. God caused them to pass before him. And then Adam was given the task of naming. Now, we know from Genesis chapter 1 that he said when he was creating man, male and female, that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and they were to rule and subdue all of creation. So we see here God is giving Adam a task as part of his ruling and subduing, and he's going to be tasked with naming the animals. So um, then what we see that uh, the Lord God said in verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. 
I will make a helper suitable for him. And that word is E-Z-E-R in the Hebrew. And when I looked it up on how to pronounce on the internet, it says it's like Eitzer, like the number eight, Z-E-R, Eitzer. But it means strong helper. Um, But then out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, we know he created the animals prior to Adam and Eve because they were the climax of creation. And so really the translation there should have been because out of the ground, God had created. So it's already taken place and he's going to bring them before mankind to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. There was no counterpart. Now, we mentioned this last week that everything in creation had a counterpart. Sun, moon, light, day, land, sea, everything had a counterpart. And we know from the beginning, God intended to create mankind, male and female, to accurately image him. And God... God allowed Adam, though, to be created first. Then he had the animals pass before him so that Adam saw everybody else has a counterpart. Everything else in creation has a counterpart except for me. God allowed him to recognize his need before he met that need. Now let's look what God does in creating Eve. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now we see here Adam names her not only woman, but in Genesis 3.20 he gives her the name of Eve, the mother of all the living. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I had mentioned last week that the Lord has just really been opening my heart and mind to the truth and the significance of the order in which God created and how he created us as male and female. I was, I've been reading a lot of different people to kind of hear what's being said out there. But then I was coming back to the word of God. And a couple of weeks ago, I was just dwelling on this. And I was saying, God, I know because you've shown me over and over in scripture that everything you do has significance. Everything you do, the order, exactly how you do it is significant. Why was Eve taken out of his side? God could just as easily have taken clay from the ground and fashioned her the exact same way he did Adam. But he did not choose to do that. He took her out of his side. God, why did you do that? And why did you call her a helper, an eitzer? Do you know what it is, an eitzer? Because we think, I think sometimes when we hear the word helper, we think about when we had children and we would give them a job to do that really didn't need to be done to keep them busy. You're mommy's little helper. (laughs) As though being a helper is not a good thing. And yet what we find out is that the word for Eitzer, it's actually a powerful military term. And it's a word whose significance we've just barely begun to unpack. Carolyn Custis James says in her book, The Eitzer is a warrior, and this has far-reaching implications for women, not only in marriage, but in every relationship, season, and walk of life. Because it's used 21 times in the Old Testament, Eitzer is. 16 of them are used for God as Israel's strong helper. 
when God would come to, to the defense of Israel. So being a woman, being an Eitzer, is not less than. We are created male and female, equal but different in the way that we reflect the image of God. So men and women were created both in the image, both told to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. God gifts women and men with the same gifts when you look at the body of Christ. The only office limited to men in the Old Testament was the office of priest or Levite. And in the New Testament, it's pastor and elder. A lot of churches also, like our church, deacons are men, mainly because it doesn't, it's not clear in Scripture. It gives a qualification for the wife of the deacon is what it says, but not necessarily women as deacons. But we know for sure priest Levite in the Old Testament, pastor elder in the New are male. We know God created Adam first, that he's given headship in the home, headship in the church, but even out in the world. I'm not subservient to every man, but I line up under authority. When I'm working, I line up under the person I directly report to, my boss, who reports to their boss, who reports to their boss. So there's a chain of command. God is a God of order. We know that from the way he created. Everything was done in an orderly fashion, and everything had a specific purpose. Now, I've given you the definitions of egalitarianism and complementarianism. I'm not going to read them to you, but basically an egalitarian believes that men and women were created equal. And the couple of the egalitarians I was reading during all of this basically try to dismiss the fact that Adam was created first and that Eve was taken out of his side. They try to make that, that's not such a big deal. Um, and I just can't go there because I don't see it in Scripture. I know how important everything God does is. So I'm complementarian, which I believe we were created to complement, which is what we just read, a suitor, a helper suitable for him to complement, to be the counterpart to the male as a female, to accurately reflect the Lord. So I'm complementarian because I see in Scripture that men were the leaders as Levites and priests and men were the leaders as pastors and elders in the New Testament. I believe that is the position that is for men only, but everything else is open to women. And we're going to see in a minute why it really shouldn't matter to us. <laughs> but we looked at marriage, and we see that it's biblically defined here as one man and one woman for life. It says that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's a holy covenant that we enter into when we get married. In fact, Malachi 2.14, the Lord was angry with his people, and he says, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So it is a covenant relationship. What kind of relationship do we have with God the Father through Jesus Christ? It's a covenant relationship. And it is non-ending, everlasting commitment and covenant. Now I realize, and we'll talk about this next week, on this side of the fall, that's been damaged and marred. I understand that. But that was God's original intent. Jesus actually confirmed God's original design as well. In Matthew 19, 3 through 9, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Because they could. A man could just decide he didn't want to be married anymore, and he could just write a certificate of divorce. Now the woman could not do that but the men could. 
And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, I am also complementarian because of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. If you'd like to turn there, you may. I'm going to read it because we know that being male and female and marriage itself is actually to be a picture of of our covenant relationship with God. It's a picture of Christ and the church. And that's what Paul really emphasizes here when he's talking about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands or submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, may we pause there. None of us have a perfect husband. Mine's pretty wonderful most days, but he's not perfect, and neither am I. <laughs> um, and so when I am submitting to Steve and allowing him to lead in our home, I am doing it as unto the Lord. I'm doing it because that's God's design that he specified in his word. So I'm choosing to obey the Lord, knowing that if Steve doesn't get it right, God will deal with him. So I, and I'm not talking abuse by any stretch of the imagination, okay? I'm talking about normal issues that we deal with. If you're in an abusive situation, see a counselor, get some help. That's not what we're talking about. You don't submit to abuse or to sin, ever. But we are to submit to our husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything, in everything. That's a challenge for most of us strong-willed females. <laughs> and then he says, husbands, now I want you to listen to what he says to the husbands, though. We think our calling is, is tough. Listen to what he's called them to do. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, died for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. That means our husbands are responsible for presenting us to the Father without spot and blemish, having grown and matured and developed spiritually. They're going to answer to the Lord for that. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now listen to this. This mystery is great. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Of Christ in the church, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to, have his, is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. God has called on us and commanded us to do the very things that we need. 
He has hardwired our husbands to need respect. And so he commands us to respect them, to submit to them. He also is a God of order, and he knows that there needs to be a head for there to be order in the home. For there, it's for our well-being. It's for our flourishing as well as the flourishing of our children. But who wouldn't be able to submit to a man who loved you like Jesus? who gave himself for you, who treasured you and cherished you and loved you like he loved his own body and was careful to make sure you had the ability to come to Bible study, to have resources to be able to study and to grow in Christ's likeness, knowing he was going to be responsible for the Lord for the spiritual well-being of his family. And because there's a higher story being told. This is a picture of Christ and the church of real love and covenant keeping, a covenant keeping God. So that's what he's called us to. We are to obey the word of God in our marriages because our marriages point to the gospel. Now, as I've been thinking through this, I thought, you know, a real woman, a female that is an image bearer of Christ I see basically four things. There may be more, but these are things that stood out to me. Number one, we're an image bearer. We are to image the Lord everywhere we go. Two, we're a strong helper. We're an aidser. We are to come alongside to fight for, to encourage. You know, it's, I think that's probably where the mama bear <laughs> analogy comes from. Somebody messes with your husband or your kids, guess what? It's hard not to, you know, to go after them, right? That's that, that's that strong helper, that defender like God was and is of Israel. And then we're a life giver. We're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but and, and Eve was called the mother of all the living. So our bodies are created by God to be able to give life. And then we're also gifted and empowered by God. God gifts us and places us in his body as he wills, the Bible tells us. And we're empowered by his Holy Spirit. So this is part of, at least, what it means to be created in the image of God. We're created for relationship. And we are complete as women in Christ, apart from marriage. You do not have to be married to be complete as a woman. And I think sometimes we need to distinguish between our identity and our roles. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is in what it means to be female. These things we just said, image bearer, eighter, life giver, uh, gifted and empowered by God. That's part of what it means to be female, and in an excellent book by Christy Cole, in fact, at the end of your handout, you have some resources and a couple of podcasts that will help you if you want to do some additional study on this. But um, she says, women tend to define themselves by roles, student, career woman, boss, mother, wife, grandmother, etc., or by the absence of such roles. But there is danger in defining yourself by a role you play. Roles are often temporary, lasting for a season. Roles may bring clarity to how and with who you live out your calling, but they do not determine your identity or your calling. Okay, now how do they differ? For instance, when sometimes when couples have children, the children leave the nest and the parents have been so focused on the kids that they've kind of lost their relationship with one another. And a lot of times you see couples really struggle during that time because for the mother, maybe her identity was so wrapped up in her children that she really doesn't even know who she is now because she spent so much time focusing on her kids. That's where we as women need to understand our job is to launch them. 
right? So we have, it's major hands-on when they're little, a little bit more, or a little bit less, a little bit less. And by the time they're teens, we're coaching and we're preparing them to leave the nest. They need to be strong, capable individuals, arrows that we shoot out into the world that will be kingdom advancers, that know that they have a purpose and a place in God's kingdom, and he's writing their story. So we need to be investing in them that way, but the, the more you release them, the easier it will be then when that transition actually happens. So we need, that's one of the ways that we can allow our role to be confused with our identity. Our identity is in Christ, and our calling will be linked to our giftedness and our passion. What, has it, what is it God has called you to do? And he's going to call you and gift you to fulfill things within the body of Christ and within his kingdom, but those are not your identity either. Your identity is in Christ Jesus, and in him we have every spiritual blessing. Courtney Riesig, in her book, um, The Accidental Feminist, Restoring Our Delight in God's Good Design, said, As women, we don't find our identity in our home, our work, our body, or our marital status. We find it in the God who created us in his image. God is the creator, and we are the created. He is the one who dictates how we are supposed to live, not the other way around. We do not get to define our identity. Rather, we gain our identity in the identity of another. He has every right to tell us how he wants us to live as human beings and specifically as women. He is the creator. He has created us to image him, and he is a God of order, and everything he does has significance and eternal impact. God created Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of creation And he declared them very good. Now, the order in which God brings the universe into being out of chaos is significant. All that he does births beauty and holiness. And all that he created had a counterpart, as we've said. And when Adam saw that he did not have a counterpart, he recognized his need. And God met that need. Now, I was sitting outside after reading and studying this, and I've been working on Genesis for something else I'm working on as well, and I was sitting out there thinking, okay, Lord, I've read what everybody else has to say. I want to get into your word, and I only want what you have to say. God, show me, why did you create Adam differently? Why did you create Eve out of his side? God, I know it's significant. I know it is. These authors that are trying to dismiss it as not being significant, that cannot be true because everything you do has purpose. You do nothing without purpose. And I was just sitting in my backyard, just crying out to the Lord and said, God, show me. There's no way I can know this apart from you. And immediately I thought, Lord, Adam was the first Adam. Everybody goes back to Adam. So Eve had to be created out of Adam for everybody to go back to Adam. He's the first Adam. Sin comes from him. The second Adam, Christ, would be the one who offers us life. So, okay, I I get that. So you had to take her out of his side. But why out of his side? Why out of his side, Lord? All I can tell you is suddenly I saw Christ on the cross and his side being pierced and blood flowing forth, the precious blood that purchased his bride. The church was birthed from his side. How have I never seen this? How have I not known this? 
I was blown away. Lord, yes, everything you do is significant. Everything you do points to a truer reality in Christ and an eternal reality that all of us will experience. I was just blown away. Lord, it was your side that was pierced. It was your blood, more precious than silver or gold, that purchased your bride, the church. The first Adam did not obey God and thus brought the curse upon us all. The second Adam, Jesus, took the curse upon himself on the cross. Because Jesus is the second Adam, all can come to life through him. Jesus is our example. Now let me tell you why it's important for us to grasp our role in marriage to be submissive to our husbands if you're married. Now this does not mean that you can't it doesn't it does not mean that you're submissive to every man. And there are complementarians like hard complementarians that teach that that every woman is submissive to every man. That is not true. It's in marriage, it's in the church, and then outside of it, it's just authority structures that God has put in place that we're, submiss- that we're submissive to. But we're to have the attitude of Christ Jesus. Now, follow me on this one, because this is um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, Jesus is equal with God. We looked at the Trinity in our very first week. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, three in one. Jesus is co-equal with the Father, but during his time on earth, He chose instead to empty himself and become a bond servant, which is what we are to do as followers of Jesus Christ. We are to be his bond servant. And while Jesus was on the earth, what did he do? He said, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Because he had chosen not to hang on to that equality, but instead he emptied himself and became a bond servant And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If I am going to follow the example of my Savior, I can choose to submit to my husband as unto the Lord and follow the example of Jesus, who was willing to become obedient even to the point of death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have Jesus as our example. We're created male and female, equal in Christ, equal by God, but with a different calling and role. God created Adam first. Eve was taken out of his side to be his counterpart, his helper, his aitzer, that strong warrior that comes alongside him so that they could complete the mandate God had given them to be fruitful and multiply and to rule and subdue, both of them. But in order, in order, that was before the fall, ladies. 
That was before the fall. After the fall, that relationship is distorted and perverted, and we deal with the issues that we have today as a result of it in all of our relationships. But that was not how God initially intended for it to be. Jesus is not eternally subservient to the Father. Now listen to this. Neither will we be to our husbands because in marriage, in, in heaven there is no marriage. But we will be submitted to our bridegroom, Jesus. The church, male and female, will submit to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And guess what the church is supposed to be right now on the earth? An image bearer, male and female. We're supposed to be a strong helper, male and female. <laughs> a life giver, the Great Commission, male and female. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And we are gifted and empowered by God and placed in the body as he wills. The church is female. And <laughs> she is to image God the way we are to image God as women until we see Christ face to face. Until he returns we are to image or reflect him to a lost world. We're to join him in advancing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we're to make disciples, bringing people out of death into life through the power of the gospel. And we're to operate according to the gifts he has granted in his church, empowered by his spirit. Now think with me one moment, back in the garden. What did we see after God created Eve out of Adam's side? He presents her, the first bride, to the first groom. And he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling, cleave to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. Taken out of, becoming one once again, male and female. It takes both to accurately image God. And in the new Jerusalem, the church, the bride, will be presented by the Father to our bridegroom. Ladies, what a blessing, what a privilege to be created female, to image God in the world according to his plan, not ours. Now next week, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, we're going to get into a little more detail and depth about what is happened to mar the image and why there's so much confusion in our culture right now about what it means to be male and female, what marriage is. So we'll be looking at that next week. But right now, can you just savor the beauty of being taken from Adam's side and being purchased as his bride from the side of our Savior? Hallelujah. What a bridegroom.